Rumi is an, a glorious, glorious love mystic who comes about 500 years after the time of Muhammad out of this tradition that I call radical love. And to put it as simply as you can, there's a beautiful little poem that Rumi has, you and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. Professor, writer, director of Duke University's Islamic Studies Center, tour guide, Dr. Umid Safi, Islamic mysticism, American pragmatism, the liberationist tradition, traditions that link love and justice, bringing in the new year as if we had never heard of a you and an I, coming up on the Janice Adams Show. First, the news. I was researching a hero of mine, Dr. Vincent Harding, and his masterwork, There Is a River, A History of African America, when I came upon a column about him by Dr. Omid Safi, written in memoriam. The title, Four Months, 28 Days, 5 Hours, 11 Minutes, OMG. Here's Omid Safi to tell the story. Uncle Vincent, as those of us who loved him and, and knew him called him, and he asked us to call him, uh, he was such a beautiful presence in my life. Um, I am um, uh, I'm, I'm a Muslim, an American, uh, someone who is uh, deeply involved in causes of um, nonviolence and racial justice and sexual justice. And, and there's probably nothing that has shaped my own moral imagination as much as the speech that uh, Dr. King uh, gave on April 4th, 1967 in Riverside Church. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it was really that speech um, that in which Dr. King connected um, anti-black racism in America to colonialism and militarism abroad. Other people had done it before, but, uh, but King had never done it so clearly and so passionately and so publicly. Um, and, and this talk was not received well. And, uh, you know, the FBI went on to call him the most dangerous man in America and the public uh, media turned against Dr. King. Um, and called him a demagogue and a man who had outlived his usefulness to his people. And a day to the year after that, he was shot and killed, of course, outside of room 306 um, of the balcony of Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and that speech had really shaped my life and I had taught that speech to my students um, for years. Uh, and, and it never occurred to me that the speech was anything other than the words of Martin Luther King himself. And, uh, you know, one day as I was researching it, um, I, I came across a site that said, oh, actually, this was um, drafted by Vincent Harding. And I had not heard of Vincent Harding. So I go and I Googled him. And I remembered that it said, you know, Vincent Harding, born in such and such a day, and it didn't give a death date. And I was really confused because in my mind, the civil rights era was something from 40, 50 years ago. And I expected that you know all the giants of that age uh, were already in heaven. <laughs> and I Google his name and it turns out that he's living. And so I contacted him immediately. He wrote the most fanboyish email that you can imagine. Uh, you know, dear Dr. Harding, you don't know who I am, but I'm a child of Martin's and a child of the civil rights movement. And, and I just learned that the speech that has so shaped me and moved me was written by you. And I was wondering if I could just come and see you and if I could just come and sit at your feet. Um, and I hit send before I could manage to make it sound any more dorky than, than it did. <laughs> um, and just a few hours later, I got a response back. Um, here's my phone number. Uh, please call me. 
uh, and I, I called him and um, Uncle Vincent picked up the phone and I, my voice shaking and trembling, I introduced myself and in that way that I won't try to imitate, but uh, he never called you um, just by your name. He would have never just called me Omid. It was always um, my dear brother, nephew, son, and co-worker in the cause of love and justice. Mm. Um, and every conversation with him started that way. My dear son, nephew, brother, and co-worker in the cause of love and justice. Um, and this is, of course, how he addressed everyone. And so we went on to have a few years of friendship where as often as I could, I would fly out to Denver to sit with him, to soak up this lived wisdom and experience, and an unlikely friendship in some ways between a 40-year-old brown Muslim kid uh, and an 80-something-year-old African-American giant of the civil rights era, of a Christian background. But I think we connected in so much of what we saw in the world. Um, and in fact, the very last speech that Uncle Vincent ever gave publicly um, was on April 4th of 2014, the year that he passed away. He died about mm. six weeks after that. And he was called Riverside Now. Uh, and it was a talk in which it was at Iliff Seminary where um, he was an emeritus professor. And it was a talk in which he came to connect um, the context of the 1960s war on Vietnam to the um, contemporary so-called war on terror, which is primarily waged on black and brown Muslim bodies yes. in Africa, in the Middle East, and um, elsewhere. Um, and um, so, you know, when he passed away on May 19th of that year, I, I just sobbed. I, I wept as I have rarely wept in my life, um, not only for Uncle Vincent's passing as an individual, but um, really feeling that in some ways this connection that I had and we all have to um, this oceanic uh, being of wisdom, uh, of gentleness, um, was, was something that um, we wouldn't have access to on earth anymore. And we were going to have to find it deep inside our own hearts. Um, and there were so many times that I would sit with him and I would be ranting about something happening. And mind you, this is all before the Trump era. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. This is all during uh, President Obama's administration, which now looks like a fairy tale in mm -hmm. retrospect. Even uh, though you felt the tectonic shift um, of the backlash, because that's, that's right. what was happening. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. And and I think the whole birther movements mm -hmm. and um, you know the the anti-black and anti-Muslim rhetoric, which were linked together in the person who would be called Barack Hussein Obama, mm -hmm. right? Um, so they hated him because he was black and because they suspected him of being Muslim, even though, of course, he's Christian. Um, and so I would just go on, um, you know, ranting in the way that sometimes um, uh, young idealist people uh, are known to do, even if they're 40-something. <laughs> and, uh, and Uncle Vincent would just listen and not very wisely and very knowingly. And at the end of uh, maybe 10 minutes of me ranting, he would put his hand on my hand and he would say, my dear son, nephew, and brother in the cause of love and justice, I agree with everything that you say. Your critique is exactly right but we must never make the mistake of thinking that rage alone can transform people towards the better. You have to give them hope. Mm. And every time in every conversation, uh, he would always say, your political critique is right, your insight and your analysis is spot on, 
don't forget about hope and love as that which truly transforms people. Yes. Um, and, and I realized that, you know, this has been one of the reasons why um, I would keep flying out to Denver um, to sit at his feet in a way that I didn't do that to so many of the great Marxist professors that I've had in my own life because they gave me the anger and the rage and the analysis, but there was no remedy. There was, no, there was nothing redemptive. There was nothing that would um, heal mm -hmm. a sin-sick soul, to use explicitly yes. Christian language yes. there. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was Uncle Vincent who... Um, called my attention again and again to that poem that he loved so much from Langston Hughes um, of America as the land that has never been yet. Mm -hmm. um, and he loved to read both parts, right? Um, oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. And then he would go on to say, and yet I swear this oath, America will be, mm. right? And that was his unshakable faith uh, in the triumph of good over evil, of light over darkness, of love over apathy. He was not Pollyanna-ish by any stretch of imagination. I mean, this is a person who had lived through... Um, some of the most horrific episodes of white supremacy in our country and someone who had traveled to Palestine and to Africa to see what does the cry of the heart of occupied and oppressed people look like. And he made that connection between the suffering of black folk and poor white folk in America to the suffering of colonized black and brown and yellow people around the world. So he saw, he saw suffering, he knew injustice, but he would keep coming back to say, yes, we as America have blood on our hands, we are guilty of injustice, and we are not doomed to always live as we are living. There is hope for a better America, and... You know, I think this was part of what I realized, um, you know, we just went through a whole um, presidential election in which the two options that we had, which were not identical, but on one hand, we had, you know, this white supremacist saying that he's going to make America great again. And the alternative to that was a woman who said, no, we're not going to make America great again because America has always been great. And I felt like Uncle Vincent was someone who could say, you know, we haven't always been great. And as long as we have been oppressing black folk and committing genocide against the indigenous people mm -hmm. and treating the Irish and Italians and Jews and Mormons and Hispanics and Muslims and Chinese and Japanese the way that we have, we have not been great. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. It is possible for us. So it was this open-eyed look at injustice that we have committed and are committing and yet to hold out hope and love and light that greatness, goodness, kindness, justice, love, that these are possible for us as a people, not to be the Lord of the whole planet, not to be nation number one, but to be a kind nation, a good nation, a decent nation. It's a reminder that we can't be great until we're good and we're not good yet. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, if I may then come back to that column that you had uh, seen the four months, 28 days, five hours and 11 minutes, um, this was also a powerful reminder, uh, for me because 
as I was struggling in all of these um, causes of justice and, and nonviolence and the struggle for economic justice out there, uh, there was quite a lot of turbulence in my own personal life. Um, I had a marriage that had fallen apart. I was trying to raise my kids as a single parent and uh, going through a lot of hardship. And Uncle Vincent always reminded me that this is a marathon. <laughs> this, is not a, this is not a sprint. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do good out in the world, it's really important to keep rejuvenating yourself. And one of the ways of doing that, not the only way, but one of the ways of doing that is to have love in that most intimate and tender part of your life. So Uncle Vincent himself had been married before and very happily married before, and then his wife passed away. And at the age of 82, he decided to get married again to Aljozi Harding, a woman that he had been friends with for about 50 years. And it was Aljozi that I shared a lunch with. Um, and I'll read, if I may, just a couple of paragraphs from this encounter that I had with her. Please do. It said, um, so I wrote this, uh, you know, a few years ago, but yesterday I shared a lunch with an elegant, fierce, beautiful and intelligent African-American woman who had been married to an icon of our lifetime. Her husband, this is Vincent Harding, passed away on May 19th, 2014. His passing drove me to tears that would not stop and I couldn't imagine what it had been like for her. I knew that they had been in each other's lives for about 50 years. I asked her for how many of those decades they had been married. She looked at me with the gentle smile of an elder and answered, four months, 28 days, five hours, 11 minutes. These days I sit a great deal with joy, second chances, and a love that lingers into eternity. This conversation reminded me yet again that this divine love, this lingering love, need not come around the first time or early in one's life. Yes, thank you so much. When we come back, more with our guest, Dr. Omid Safi, after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back with our guest, Dr. Omid Safi, and he is uh, the director of the Islamic Studies Center at Duke University, a writer, a blogger, speaker. Um, and as I mentioned in the previous segment, I came upon his work with this extraordinary piece that he had written, four months, 28 days, five hours, 11 minutes, about the life and legacy and love of Vincent Harding, a scholar. But there are other pieces that you have written about him and pieces that you, that, you know, he died in, in 2015. And if as an elder he died then, then I think how fortunate for him that he died on the upswing where he knew something was about to happen that was would be extraordinary, but he didn't yet know what it was. And he did not, therefore, live to see the backlash and the backslide that America is going through right now in the era of Trump. But you've written to that. How are you feeling at this time? You know, I think uh, if, if your heart is open, uh, it is hard not to feel like every day is another sucker punch. Um, it is a gut-wrenching 
and demoralizing um, time to be a human. Um, and none of us uh, from any one community have a monopoly on this feeling of being um, drained and tired. Um, it, I think it used to be that in another day and time, we would move from crisis to crisis. You could feel like um, Watergate was a crisis and the Iran-Contra thing was a crisis and um, you know this war is a crisis. And now it feels like we are, we've entered um, some kind of a new phase where the whole damn thing is a crisis. Mm. Um, and, and I think that is on purpose. I actually am convinced that part of um, this new phase of white supremacy and toxic masculinity and militarism and nepotism and corrupt capitalism to the core are running rampant. I think part of what they are planning to do is to so bombard us with every day a new executive order, every day a new outrageous statement where, you know, at some point you just have to stop and pinch yourself and remember that like um, we're, we're talking about a president where, where the Russians have intelligence on him and he has paid hush money to a porn star and there's mingling a personal business and national policy and this has now become so everyday that it hardly is news anymore where at seven o'clock in the morning um, some barely elected president tweets out yet another insulting comment about yet another block of humanity. So I think the, the real question for me when somebody asks, how are you doing and how is your heart? And I have to look back on my elders. I have to stand on the shoulders of giants is we're not going to outrage the tweeter in chief. We cannot dismantle the master's house using the master's tools, as we've been taught. We need some different weapons. So I don't think we're going to get through this simply through rage and anger and fear. And look, if you are not outraged by what's happening, you should have somebody drive you to the emergency room because your heart ain't working. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? We, we, we have to be. This is outrageous. We're talking about tear gassing children. Mm. Tear gassing children. Children in cages. Babies. And babies. Babies, babies, babies. in cages. Two-year-olds being brought to a court of law to speak for themselves. And mama's holding their babies and walking thousands of kilometers to seek their internationally guaranteed right to asylum. And a nation that has the audacity to proclaim itself a shining city on a hill. And a nation of immigrants. And a nation of immigrants. And give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And every Hollywood film yep. that tells you this is the place you should be. That's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, we went and we saved the world. And don't you forget it. Don't you forget to be grateful, right, for us having saved the world. Well, I, I think we've lost not just our way, but we've lost our soul somewhere along the way. So it is absolutely proper to be outraged. The question is, and I think this is why the answer it's not simply a political answer, though it is about that. It's not simply an economic answer, though of course it has implications of that. How do we take our outrage but filter it through a lens of love so that 
each and every single one of us can take a look at our own babies, at our own communities, at our own families and say, I know how much I love my babies. Mm -hmm. I know what I would want for my babies. I would want to have food in their bellies. I would want to have a roof over their head and I want to have dignity in their bones. And I will never stop resisting until I make sure that everybody else's babies has the exact same thing that I would want for my own babies. If you call yourself a person of faith, a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or a decent human being, that has to be the starting point. Talking about starting points, you are American-born, mm-hmm. Florida. Were you born to a family that practiced Islam? Um, yes, both of my parents and I myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is this is my anchor. This, so, these are my, as we say down south, these are my roots. <laughs> so tell us about those roots, and you know the America into which you were born. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I I always make the point of saying that, uh, as I think Dr. King also said, and Uncle Vincent said. Um, in the late 60s. I think it took Dr. King a little bit longer to get to that point. But by the late 60s, he was saying that, look, it's a little naive to only speak of America as a dream. And he said, I think in retrospect, by 67, King was saying this, I was a little naive to speak only about the dream that I had had. I should have also said that America is also a nightmare for too many of us. Right? And that's, of course, the same language that Malcolm had been saying all along. So towards the end of their life, interestingly, there's a convergence, I think, of Martin and Malcolm. So I'm a product of a time where the late 60s were certainly a nightmare for many Americans, for many black Americans, for many Americans opposed to war and so on. But it was also a time where there was still a dream that was associated with America. My parents, who are both Iranians, left their ancestral homeland, a place that we had been for more than a thousand years, right? Our family tree goes back more than a thousand years in Iran. And they left the land of their ancestors, not because they had stopped loving it, That love has never gone out of their hearts, but because they loved their children more and they thought that we could have and would have a better life here. So I'm grateful for the fact that I've gotten to spend, yes, the majority of my life in this country, that my my language is the language of this country, my idioms are the idioms of this country, my musical tastes uh, are going to be just as much hip-hop and Coltrane and jazz and gospel and even some cheesy 80s rock, (laughs) right? And at the same time, I've got roots over in that part of the world that I got to spend 14 years of my life living in Iran, that when I think about black and brown people in the Middle East, I don't have to look at it through the lens of news headlines, which are designed to dehumanize people, I can begin by thinking about my family members and I can think about the people who loved me as I was growing up over there. And I would never want to have bombs and sanctions and hunger and the loss of dignity to happen to those folks any more than I would want it to happen here. So tell us about those people who loved you as you were growing up. Who is, what is that Iran? You know, uh, I grew up in Iran, which was our, our home. I left the United States when I was one year old. And we went back to Iran because my father wanted to give something back. He's a physician. And he wanted to give something back to his ancestral homeland. And so we lived in Iran. And I grew up in Iran at a time where... Almost everybody that you would come across, cab drivers and farmers and 
um, illiterate folk and educated folk, uh, in the middle of their conversation, they would just start spouting poetry. Um, and they would start quoting six, seven, eight hundred year old poems um, to decorate the point that they were making. And this is how people in that part of the world talk. I grew up in Iran at a time where the word religion and the word Islam was hardly ever used because it was actually like air. It was so pervasive. It was so all around. It was so nourishing that uh, it was everywhere without having to be named. It's only when people get defensive and people feel like they're under attack that they start taking the very things that have been sustaining them and nourishing them and turning them into things, into systems that they then have to defend. How do you mean that? So um, take something like uh, Christianity, for example. Okay. Um, in my own experience, and I'm, I am just as I'm a child of Iran, I'm also a child of the Deep South. I have spent the majority of my life living in the Deep South. Um, and this is the part of the country that I know and I love, and I don't love everything about it. <laughs> um, in my experience, the most beautiful followers of Jesus that I have ever met in my life are the ones who walk around with an awareness of the gospel according to St. Matthew, that which you do to the least of these you do unto me. They walk around looking for the poor, the orphan, the needy, the widow, the stranger, which is to say the immigrant, the refugee, and they treat the immigrant and the refugee and the poor and the orphan and the widow as they would treat Jesus. Mm. And the very people who speak about Christianity all the time, our Christian faith is under threat, our Christian way of life is under attack, those are the very people who act, in my experience, the most un-Christ-like of anybody that I come across. The more they act like Jesus, the less they use the word Christianity. Um, you're talking to an African-American woman who's a historian, and, and I am always struck by the ferocity uh -huh. of American American religion yes, and have lost friends for saying the truth, which is that the more religious Americans get, often the more dangerous it is for people of color. Yes, and yes. It is, it is a sad truth about this country. That does not mean that religion in and of itself is bad, but there is something in the most traditional forms of American religion that we do need to look at. I mean, when you say you come for religious freedom and that is the basis upon which this country is founded, but this country was, quote, settled by genocide. Yeah. So your religious fundamental structure somehow countenances genocide. We have to look at it. And I, I'm always struck by that thought, not just about saying, okay, pointing that finger, but what does this tell us, therefore, in helping us to understand why other people are feeling the way they're feeling with their fundamentalism and 
how can one fundamentalism meet another fundamentalism and somehow come to an understanding that then guides us to some kind of a more peaceful recognition of what all our sins have been and what our common humanity and destiny is. To go back to what you were talking uh, about in terms of the conversation about uh, the danger um, that uh, is oftentimes posed to people of color, to black folk, to immigrant folk, undocumented folk, queer folk, um, oftentimes by people who see themselves as being quite religious, is there is this false dichotomy that I hear all too often, and to be truthful, and if we are called to speak truth to power, uh, then our speaking of truth should not be tribal. It should not be to protect our sect from anybody else. And this false dichotomy, I hear it just as often from a kind of Fox News watching notion of quote-unquote traditionally religious. And I sometimes also hear it from my groovy friends on the very left, and I would count myself as among them, who nevertheless have a kind of allergy towards religious life and practice. So the false binary, I think, is between a kind of something called traditional religion and something else that's supposedly secular and progressive. So when I hear somebody describe themselves as I'm religious or I'm a huge advocate of the role of religion, the next question that I want to ask immediately, and I don't care so much about the words that are used, I want to pay attention to the actions because I do remember our Lord Jesus having said at some point, you shall know them by their fruit, not just by the PR language that comes out of their mouth. The next question that I want to know is, if you say religious, what kind of religion? Because the slave owners claimed to be practicing a demented kind of Christianity, but they claimed to be religious, and the slaves had a religion. The enslaved people, one should say, had a religion. The Pharaoh claimed to have a religion, and the ones that he was oppressing, the Hebrews, had a religion. So before you tell me, or after you've told me that you're religious, that you support the role of religion, pray tell, go on and tell me what kind of religion. Is it a religion that's about sharing kindness, generosity, justice, tenderness, love, mercy, compassion? Or is it a kind of quote-unquote religion where it is used to prop up those that seem to have everything at the expense of those that have nothing? When we come back, more with our guest, Dr. Omid Safi. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back with our guest, Dr. Omid Safi, and we've been just having a, a conversation, let me just say, about life, about history, about knowledge as power, about how we shape our intentionality. How did you come to your scholarship? I have been blessed in my life to have grown up with the love of a great mom and a great father. And um, there, there have been a lot of challenges and struggles in my life, but the one challenge that I've never had is knowing in my bones that I am worthy of love and dignity uh, because I've never known any other from my parents. And in terms of my scholarship, whether I'm working on contemporary Islam or what's happening in America or Uncle Vincent or Malcolm or Martin or that other great love of mine, which is medieval Islamic spirituality, like the voice of people like Rumi, 
um, or the Prophet Muhammad, um, I gravitate towards teachings that affirm that same love and dignity and honor that my mama put into my heart. I think that's the most truthful thing I can tell you is my heart gravitates towards beautiful teachings. And, and there is an intimacy that I find with it when I come across it and, um, and I, I surrender to it and I open my heart to it and try to figure out what can I learn from it in my own life and how can I be authentically myself and bring something fresh to this perspective as well. So I don't want to just iconize and fossilize the great giants of the past. Um, part of my own responsibility is to be the child that God has made me to be. I want to go back very quickly because you mentioned Muhammad and you mentioned Rooney. Yes. Would you give just quick introductions to those prophets that other people might not know? Yeah, thank you. So with Muhammad, think of someone who comes out of the tradition of Amos, uh, out of the tradition of Jeremiah, someone who knows that when he sees the suffering, he's got to speak out, otherwise the rocks are going to cry out. And that's Muhammad. He comes out of that same Near Eastern context, a little bit further south than many of the prophets of Judea. He came from Arabia. Um, he was an orphan who lost his own mom and dad at a young age and used to love to retreat to a mountaintop and meditate on the state of the world. And he knew that this polytheistic and unjust existence of his society is not the way that things had to be. And he kept praying to God, show me things as they are in your reality. And he was called at the age of 40 to be a prophet who affirms the previous guidance of Abraham and Moses and Jesus. All of those are acknowledged in the Quran as divinely sent prophets and messengers. And to call humanity to the symbol message that God is one and we as humanity are one. And we cannot claim to love one God if we as human beings are divided against ourselves. And that religion became Islam. And Rumi? Rumi is an, a glorious, glorious love mystic who comes about 500 years after the time of Muhammad out of this tradition that I call radical love. I recently edited an anthology of sayings of Rumi and Muhammad and some of the great other Muslim mystics. And to put it as simply as you can, um, there's a beautiful little poem that Rumi has about how separation causes pain in this world. And so he says, you and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. Oh, that's wonderful. And there's 60,000 more lines like that that he's got. This is just one of them. That's just one of them. Well, one of your lines that captivated me from your presentation, Planning for Healing as Others Plan for Destruction, you have a line in there, we're all wounded, so we're all wounded healers now. How do we get to that state of being wounded healers? You know, I think one of the reasons that we are so terrified of the suffering of, of one another is that we are afraid of acknowledging our own suffering. We are not in a position to heal anybody else because we can't even admit that our own wounds are still bleeding. And there is work that each of us have to do inside our own hearts, but then there's also a healing that um, we can bring to each other. And again, if I can go back to Rumi, he talks about how this friendship and this love can be a kind of healing if we come to see both the wounds that we have and how what one person might see as a scar is actually a sign that there used to be a wound there 
and it's healed over time. So he's got this poem. Um, you'll recognize this if you're a fan of Leonard Cohen. Uh, he sings this similar, almost as if he was reading over Rumi's shoulder, except Rumi 700 years earlier. Uh, he says, trust your wound to a skilled healer. You cannot see the ugliness of your own wounds. You think you healed all by yourself, but know this, the healing was from the light. The wound is where the light enters you. The wound is where the light enters you. Well, where the light enters you, I am struck by your work and the intersection of what we say, what we do, and how you are working to bring others to that recognition in a very lovely and practical way with illuminated tours and going to Morocco, North Africa, really, going there and taking other people and guiding other people through a culture thousands of years old. Um, Tell us about illuminated tours. You know, uh, this is one of the most beautiful things that I've been able to participate in in my life. And sometimes people ask me, like, Omid, why do you keep going back to Turkey and Morocco? You've been there 40 times. And I keep telling them, yes, I have, but I've not been there with this group of friends. And there are jewels that I'm going to discover through the heart of these friends. And the recognition for it really was quite simple. Um, 9-11 happened. And I saw that there were forces in our country and in the world that wanted to sow the seeds of fear and dissension. And I thought, what if we do the opposite? What if we actually have an intimate group of people who don't know yet that they're going to become friends for life? And have these friends come from different racial backgrounds, different age groups, and specifically from different faith traditions. And we've got people in their teens and we got folks up in their 80s. So we can have that cross-generational conversation that so rarely do we get to have in life. And we get to go to these beautiful, rich, ancient cultures, Turkey and Morocco so far. And we get to see how people of different faith traditions and ethnicities and cultures and languages have managed to live together, mostly for the good and sometimes not so. How can we learn something from them? And then how can we also have a sense of fellowship? Because what we're really trying to do is we're trying to form community. And community doesn't descend down to us from heaven. Community is something that we got to shape right here on earth. And that's been one of the great joys of my life is to do this, um, this program. I've had about 600 people, almost all of whom become ambassadors of goodwill, going back to their own community. And if anybody's listening to this and are interested, there's a website for it, illuminatedtours.com, and everybody's welcome. How does the tour actually work? When I started doing this, I had a list of buildings that I wanted to take people to. And the more I do this, the more it becomes about the people, the people who live in these buildings, the people who've animated these spaces, the artists. You know, there's a beautiful friend of mine that we see in Morocco, a 29-year-old sweetheart of an artist, and uh, he's a tray maker. He pounds metal trays into these beautiful forms. It's an ancient arm form that goes back 2,000 years. And when you talk to him about how do you become a brass maker, he says, well, we take two years to teach somebody how to find the center of any piece of metal. Mm. And when you find the center of the piece of metal, you find your own center. We have metal, M-E-T-A-L, and metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. There you go. There you go. (laughs) In closing, is there something else that you'd like to read to us? Oh, what a gift you are offering me. What a gift. This one is from a female mystic 
from the Islamic tradition, Rabia. Rabia was from the part of the world um, that we call Iraq. She was an enslaved woman who became free. And this is a prayer of hers that I translated in this radical love book. Rabia says, O oh Lord, if I worship you hoping for paradise, make that paradise forbidden from me. But if I worship you only for your own sake, do not withhold from me your everlasting beauty. Dr. Omid Safi, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm honored to have had this time with you. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Dr. Omid Safi, our thanks to him and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, links to Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, Beyond Vietnam, When Silence is Betrayal, and the work of Dr. Vincent Harding, historian, professor, and speechwriter for Dr. King's historic Riverside Church speech, visit my website, janusadams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved.